This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics, and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Today we're going to cover the book Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. As for who recommended this book, it was Tony Robbins, who is most famous for being Christopher's brother, Christopher Robbins. But uh, all joking you know, you aside, took, you just took the joke. Uh, you just made the joke worse by having to explain it. I know, I know. But uh, actually, what's funny is I, I started um, listening to the book Quiet by Susan Cain this morning on Audible, and chapter three starts of her uh, with her attending a Tony Robbins event, and she she. She takes it apart, which is great because I, I haven't been to a Tony Robbins event, but I've been to some similar and they horrify me. And uh, <laughs> she she kind of goes into why those things horrify me. So I I, uh, I liked the, I liked that. So sorry if you're a, a Tony Robbins fan and and you've gotten stuff out of his. Uh, hey, and lots of people or, do. Lots of yeah, people do. Yeah, yeah, and and I think it's great, but um. Not my cup of tea, but he did suggest this book, and I think it's probably been suggested by others now as well. Um, but uh, it is by Victor E. Frankel, who was a survivor of the Holocaust. He was a survivor of four different concentration camps, including Auschwitz. Most of his family was eliminated in those camps, including his wife. And um, yeah, uh, re- very, very tragic. This book was written in nine days, which is, which is very impressive. And uh, kind of a, a quick overview of the book, and this was in the afterword written by William Winsdale, Winslade, sorry. He says that Frankel does not tell people what to do, but why they must do it. So with that, let's get into our overview and in, initial reactions. And Jason, you, you want to, you want to start this segment out? Sure. This, this book, uh, in terms of overview, uh, was way, way more than I expected it to be. Uh, certainly, uh, I think a book that is, I would say brilliant and perhaps more needed today than it was when he was, when, when he wrote it. Uh, it is, uh, it's one of those books that you could very easily read this book you know, once every year or so, or every couple of years, and still probably benefit from it. Uh, it's a, uh, uh, and, and then at the same time, it's one of those books that once you read it, uh, I think there are certain aspects of things that are just, it. for me, a lot of, a lot of what it had to say is, is stuff that I, I, I already largely, it's one of those books that, you know, it kind of speaks speaks it says things that you already kind of know but don't you wouldn't necessarily put it that way or put it that gracefully um so for me it was one of those but uh and for for a lot of people probably you'll be that um and so it gives you more of a vocabulary more of a of a sound way to evaluate and examine certain things uh for other people it's the sort of thing that it it could potentially be a life-changing book 
Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and, and the basic idea, looking at the overview, is first, the, it's, it's divided into two parts, right? The first, first part is basically chronicling his experience in Auschwitz and other uh, concentration camps, in those four concentration camps, and, and the things that he experienced and observed in those concentration camps. So it's not just one of the interesting things about this is, I mean, you can do the, he could have gone, he could have gone the route of basically just listing off all of the awful things that he observed and experienced in the concentration camps and just done that out of, you know, human curiosity or just out of a uh, desire to show how bad things were. But mm-hmm. he doesn't do that. That that first part is really about how he observed certain principles, as he talks about in their rawest form. That he got that that the concentration camp experience revealed a tremendous amount about humanity, on and, and all various aspects of it of humanity. You know the the great evil. And also the profound good that humanity is capable of, and the seemingly seeming meaninglessness of it all, and then at the same time, the uh, importance of meaning in it all. Uh, and so it's it's really really profound. That first part sort of establishes the uh, the the foundation for the book, and then the second part is little shorter and it's basically him explaining his particular version of course as you mentioned Frankel was a psychiatrist and uh, it, it mentions his particular uh, approach to psychotherapy known as logotherapy where he says based on my experiences in the concentration camp I've concluded that really what human life is about is about finding meaning and living that meaning out in life and if you if you have if you can, if you can have a sense of meaning if you can uh live according to that sense of meaning then you're going to live a meaningful life you know that's the parrot that's this you know paradox uh that you well, and, and, and what's what's interesting is he relates meaning to the word logos right logos well i mean that's the idea and he he basically that's the name of his therapy is logotherapy and he gets it from logos which logos in in Greek, uh, means uh, word or thing, and it also has to do with like the essential meaning of something. Uh, and so he basically he basically is uh, uh, names his his theory after that notion, um, after that concept, uh, which we don't have a really good word for in English. But um, yeah, and, and and that's why it stuck out to me is because it, 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 familiar with it from John one where logos is is mostly translated as as word correct right yeah it's translated as word usually in the new testament and 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 a lot of times in greek although depending on context it can be translated a lot of different ways uh but you know it's a it's a a a common term in greek philosophy uh and and such which is why it appears in john one and he's he's pulling it from the larger conversation uh of course so uh but what he does is he basically says you know a lot of the things that that have been boiled down to like by Freud, for example, uh, to uh, say uh, the will for uh, for sex, for example, right? Freudian psychoanalysis might be the will to pleasure, or you know, the pleasure principle kind of thing as a, as the primary uh, center 
of uh, of Freud or you know Adler in terms of his uh, psychological perspective is you know the will to power or striving for superiority uh, and and he says you know he, he finds after his experience and uh, insights gained in the concentration camp that really it's the will to meaning and the the longing for meaning that drives humanity and that that should be the primary focus of uh, most psychotherapy and so and and also of you know, people who are perfectly healthy should be guiding their lives according to these principles as well. So that's the basic overview of the book. And like I said, I think now in a time, and he explains this, you know, at a couple points in the book when he's talking about how automation is going to uh, provide certain challenges for, for, uh, uh, the, for continued challenges, more challenges as, as time passes by in modernity. Uh, that he uh, that he sees this as being even more important as that comes along, and I think he's I think he was right about that. Yeah. Well, our this this book was from our 2017 reading list, and uh, that included 52 books. I made it through 51 of the books last year. Failure. And I know. Well, and I I finished this one five minutes into the new year, so I don't know if that counts as uh, 2017. But nope. I read it uh, the last two days of the year, and I actually I w- was tore. I was just I was trying to finish it within the year, and I heard the fireworks going off in my neighborhood, and uh, I finished it five five minutes into the, into the new year. But of those 51 books that I read last year, this was number one on my list, and it was the the very last book that I read. Uh, so. I'm going to explain why in, in mo- mainly through the quotes that I've chosen to highlight in the, the next section. But yeah, Jason, as you mentioned, it's, it's short. Uh, the, the man's search for meaning part of it is under a hundred pages. I just bought this book for a friend of mine and I don't even think it included the logo logotherapy section. So if you just want to read man's search for meaning, it's under a hundred pages. And as you said, Jason, it'd, it'd be a good one to do, uh, to, to read every year, every, every other year. And the audiobook uh, but, version of this one is actually quite good. The, the reader does a very good job of rendering uh, a, a voice that seems in keeping with the, with the text itself. So, so if you hmm. don't, seem, don't feel like you have a whole lot of time, this is not one of those books that you really need to read. You have to like, focus on in, in written form. You can get a tremendous amount of this just, out of this just, just listening to it. So the audio version of this is also very good. Hmm. Yeah, good to know. Well, let's hit. Uh, let's go into our favorite quotes, and I'll start this off. And this is not from Frankel, but uh, it's from Nietzsche. He said, "He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how." And we saw this quote come up in "Start with Why" by Simon Sinek, which was another of my favorites of uh, the 2017 reading list. But he goes he goes into this a lot. Frankel does of. You're amidst in the concentration camps amidst this just tremendous evil, and he's he's describing man's response to this, and and the the prisoners had a number of different responses, and we we get insight here into the responses that led to survival or tended to lead to lead to survival more than than others, and how un, unfortunately so much of that was was just chance and uh, you know 90% of the people were killed right away but um, of those 10% that were not 
sent immediately to the gas chambers. Here's Frankel looking at these these men and women, mostly men because they, they were separated, and telling us what he saw and who who survived. And the, the reasons that they survived, which we'll get into, are oftentimes counterintuitive. And I, that's one part of the book that sticks out. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, so one of my favorites uh, uh, along with that, and by the way, I find it intriguing that your first quote is from Nietzsche. As a pro, as opposed to from Frankel, given uh, there's some there's some irony there, uh, but I guess <laughs> we'll get into that later in the in, in the um, in our discussion. But uh, one of my favorite quotes, and is and actually there are several several of my favorite quotes. I'll preface this: several of my favorite quotes are where he gets a little bit, um, a little bit uh, polemical when he gets when when he starts to address some differences he sort of either indirectly or directly attacks another perspective because he, he does it without a whole lot of invective. He does it really gracefully and really subtly um, with a very sort of dry, wry humor. And, and the way he does this is, is just, it's, it's, it's masterful writing. It's masterful rhetoric. And one of my favorites here is, um, he's obviously attacking Freud here where, where you know, Freud, bases his psychotherapy on the pleasure principle. Uh, he says, indeed, what is called the pleasure principle is rather a fun spoiler. <laughs> and this is in the context of him saying, uh, for example, that, that basically, um, you know, the, the, the man who is, uh, who, who, who tries too hard to be especially sexual virile and prove his sexuality is the one who, you know, is going to wind up struggling with impotence. And the, the woman who is, uh, you know, ha- on the, on the flip side has, you know, her desire to really reach climax is going to be unable to do so because again, pleasure has to be, uh, as he puts it elsewhere, pleasure is and must remain a side effect or a byproduct and is destroyed and spoiled to the to the degree to which it is made a goal in itself. So what you need to be doing is pursuing something that is meaningful and pleasure results from it, as opposed to do, pursuing pleasure in and of itself. And so I found that to be it's both a profound point, and I kind of enjoy the way that he tweaks. Freudianism in 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 how he addresses that with indeed what's called the pleasure principle is rather a fun spoiler. If you're pursuing pleasure, if you think pleasure is the aim, then pff, you're just going to end up more and more unhappy. Well, in my uh, I'll skip to one that ties in well with that, and that is, but happiness cannot be pursued; it must ensue. Oh, and the the thing that immediately came to my mind here is is. Um, the uh, our, our pursuit of happiness and and this is a kind of a direct uh statement against that in a sense of but, but happiness can, cannot be pursued it must ensue so same with what you're saying it's it's a byproduct it's not it's not the goal itself and again very very profound point and Especially in the states where that you know you, you hear that from growing up of uh, of the pursuit of happiness, but is that really what we should pursue? Yeah, I, and he of course says no. It it is not. Yeah. 
it is not. And I'm gonna. I, there's actually one more quote on my list that um, ties into this, and uh, and and so I'll go ahead and pull that one out now uh, as well. And this is early in the book. He says, "Don't aim at aim at success." So not just don't aim at pleasure. At pleasure must ensue. He says, "Don't aim at success. The more you aim at it and make it a target, the more you are going to miss it." For success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue, and it only does so as the unintended side effect of one's dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. Happiness must happen, and the same holds for success. You have to let it happen by not caring about it. And that paradox is at the root of so much of this book. I mean, that's what he's getting at over and over and over again in this book is is that particular paradox of you have to find meaning you have to pursue something bigger than yourself in order to actually be satisfied with yourself i I mean i I think we should just stop here because that's that's enough that's the book (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is it's so much richer too yeah so much more but uh, there's so yeah there's so much more in this book but that alone you could just sit and mull on for for, it's it's a, it's very important. It's very deep, and that's one small part of the book. Yeah, yeah. It just and so. and and we've talked about uh, you know C.S. Lewis had that article that we've referenced a few times and and linked to a few times uh, on this on this uh, podcast about uh, first and second things. That if you put second things first, then you get neither. But if mm-hmm. you put first things first, you get both. Uh, mm-hmm. And that that is that's what. Frankel is doing a lot here as well, but he actually goes into a good bit more detail than Lewis does uh, in that concept. I mean, this, that's the whole book is that basic idea. Whereas Lewis just kind of notes the principle and moves on. Frankel bathes in that principle and, and really spends a lot of time developing what that looks like. Well, I know you, you've brought that up in multiple episodes. So that, that's definitely a, a key takeaway that we've seen in a number of of the books of titans books uh especially in in the 2017 reading list yeah and and one of the first books things that first I'm, one of the books that i'm going to add to the 2019 reading list is definitely gonna gonna have that that same concept as well i'm adding essentialism to that list already uh, oh cool yeah so you know that uh this is this is a really important thing and you could you would do well most 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 of us would would do well to focus on that concept more every day and just to constantly mm-hmm. remind ourselves of putting first things first and, yeah. and not, not pursuing second things, not pursuing the things that must ensue, but rather putting the things that have to lead to those things that have to be in place to lead to those things first. Yeah. All right. My next one. Thus, when we saw a comrade smoking his own cigarettes, we knew he had given up faith in the strength to carry on. And once lost, the will to, to live seldom returned. And in this case, cigarettes were a currency. And so you could trade cigarettes for food. This is in the camps, so of course. He, in, the, in the camps, yeah. So Frankel knew that if he ever saw a, a comrade in, or a, another prisoner, in this case, smoking a cigarette, he knew that that man would be dead within a, within a few days. Well, the thing is, they were traded as currency, but prisoners were not allowed to smoke them aside from the capos who were actually, as he discusses in this, uh, some of the, the, these, some of the prisoners were actually put in charge of other prisoners by, by the guards and the, and the heads of these camps and tended to be 
uh, very brutal and brutish to their uh, to their uh, those under them. Uh, he said, actually, many of the capos actually enjoyed a, be- a a better existence than they did than they had outside the camps, and that there was a paradox to this, uh, and and that they tended to be especially cruel. They were they were often allowed to smoke, but n- nobody else was. So mm-hmm. once you decided to break the rules and say screw it, I'm just going to have a, I'm I'm going to start I'm going to smoke my cigarettes. I'm not going to hold them as currency anymore. I'm just going to smoke them. Well, that's that's it. You've you've given up. Mm-hmm. That was that was a really poignant thing, and it, it showed up a couple times. But basically, well, that person's going to die, and it would just be waiting for that person the next couple of days. That person would just give up and die. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Very sad. Yeah. So I'm going to go uh, to one that's a little bit less sad. Uh, this one's another dig, uh, another very uh, sort of tongue-in-cheek statement. The truth is that man does not live by welfare alone. <laughs> and this is in the context of, of him talking about how uh, his work with the unemployed who, ha- who were fighting depression uh, helped him to understand and apply these the same principles that he recognized in the in the concentration camp that the problem is that the unemployed uh, identify their usefulness or their me- the meaning of their lives with their jobs and then all of a sudden you don't have a job so there's no real sense of meaning in the world for you you don't have you don't have a meaning you're not making a contribution you're not doing anything and just giving that person money or giving that person welfare doesn't solve that problem. In fact, in many ways, that can actually exacerbate the problem because that person now not only doesn't have meaning, but is feeling like a drain. And he talked about that as a as a significant psychological uh, hurdle that those who are unemployed needed to to deal with. And he said, actually, in his treatments of uh, those suffering from unemployment depression uh he he had a technical term for it but basically unemployment depression uh when one one of his treatments for that was to get them to volunteer to go and do stuff you know to to volunteer in a in a homeless shelter or to you know go and help uh, you know help uh help young young people in you know in youth centers or whatever find something that has meaning to do in your life and he said almost invariably the depression that these, that these people were feeling and were dealing with, I mean, clinical depression would disappear mm-hmm. because suddenly they, they had something to live for. Uh, even something they, they didn't have a job. Something Russ Roberts brings up quite often in his podcast. And, yeah. and he brings it he up in the, especially in the discussions about the universal basic income. He says that, that, that does not take into consideration what you just said. And it's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. And, uh, and and at the same time, this is this is a serious. This needs to be taken very seriously when we're talking about policy discussions, not just the UBI, but the uh, but but the problem of and, and and he addresses this specifically in when he talks about um, about the increase of automation. Uh, and I've got this in notes down further. It's not in the actual um, uh, favorite quotes, but you know he has this uh, this point that he says, you know. As automation increases and pe- and people are going to have more and more uh, time on their hands, and you know there's going to be less and less to do, that's going to be that's going to be problematic. We're going to have to figure out things that are going to give us meaning in those contexts. 
because as soon as we uh as soon as we wind up in that in that situation you could potentially have people a lot of people that just feel like they feel like the unemployed mm-hmm. because they're you know what even if you do have technically a job or whatever you don't have you don't have a sense of meaning well what if you know with a UBI you know 80% of the society no longer no longer technically works you got to find something to fill the void to give you meaning yeah and this is something that we really in, in terms of policy and in terms of a lot of things need to really consider All right. My next quote, uh, Jason, you, you spoke of uh, the book not going into a lot of the gory details about the concentration camp. But in in some ways, I, I thought my oh. next quote was almost worse. Yeah, this is horrible. And uh, this, yeah, this is devastating. I shall never forget how I was roused one night by the groans of a fellow prisoner who threw himself about in his sleep, obviously having a horrible nightmare. Since I had always been especially sorry for people who suffered from fearful dreams or deliria, I wanted to wake the poor man. Suddenly, I drew back the hand, which was ready to shake him, frightened at the thing I was about to do. At that moment, I became intensely conscious of the fact that no dream, no matter how horrible, could be as bad as the reality of the camp which surrounded us, into which I was about to recall him. Dear God. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's not much to say to that. Yeah. That you're, that you don't, that you choose not to rouse someone from an awful nightmare, from, from the misery of a nightmare because waking up would be worse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You're up. (laughs) I'm going to need a second. (laughs) Yeah. I'll do one more while you're, uh, while you're, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead now. So okay. he says, um, we've come to know man as he really is. This is actually not his voice. This is from Harold Kushner. We've come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, He is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright with the Lord's Prayer or the Shema Yisrael on his lips. Wow. Yeah. Uh, In spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in the concentration camp, it was possible for spiritual life to deepen. One of those, uh, one of those contradictions, yeah, or seem, seeming contradictions. Yeah, I'll go. I'll go ahead, and my next one will, will build off of that. Fundamentally, therefore, any man can, even under such circumstances, decide what shall become of him, mentally and spiritually. He may retain his human dignity even in a concentration camp. Dostoevsky said once, "There is one thing. There's only one thing that I dread: not to be worthy of my sufferings." These words frequently came to my mind after I became acquainted with those martyrs whose behavior in camp, whose suffering and death, bore witness to the fact that the last inner freedom cannot be lost. It can be said that they were worthy, that they were worthy of their sufferings. The way they bore their suffering was a genuine inter- inner achievement. 
It is this spiritual freedom which cannot be taken away that makes life meaningful and purposeful. Yeah. Um, this, I think this one ties in with that as well. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer spirit, sufficient proof that everything can be taken away from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's own way. And I, I thought this was one of the top lessons out of the book. And, it, and it's something I see in a ton of other books now and, and even people tweeting about it. But it, it's uh, you, you, you can't oftentimes impact the things that happen to you, but you, you do have a choice in how you respond. And, and that is the one key takeaway or not one, but one of the key takeaways from the book of uh, especially in, in such horrible circumstances he he did not have control over that but he did have control over his response and he yeah. said that is the last of the human human freedoms and, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances and not only the last of the human freedoms but the very thing that gives that gives meaning to the rest mm -hmm. and and elsewhere and, and i'm going to go ahead and skip to another one of mine uh this is this is where a lot of this goes because he's talking about when you, when you when you lay life bare to the degree that the concentration camps did he said it it forces you to have to grapple with with meaning recognizing suffering and mortality in a way that that in ordinary life you don't have to and he said here here's here's where he where he goes with this he says uh it is one of the basic tenets of logotherapy that life's main concern is not to gain pleasure or to avoid pain, but rather to see a meaning in his life. That is why a man is even ready to suffer on the condition to be sure that his suffering has a meaning. And then another quote in, in the same vein, but not only create, so he's, he's talking about how creativeness and enjoyment, everybody recognizes that there's some sense of meaning with those. He says, but not only creativeness and enjoyment are meaningful. If there is a meaning in life at all, then there must be a meaning in suffering. Suffering is an ineradicable part of life, even as fate and death. Without suffering and death, human life cannot be complete. And then he sets up the distinction between the question that, his, that many of his fellow campmates were asking and what he regarded as the, the bigger question. He said, their question was, will we survive the camp? For if not, all this suffering has no meaning. The question which beset me was, has all this suffering, this dying around us a meaning? For if not, then ultimately there is no meaning to survival. For a life whose meaning depends on such a happenstance as whether one escapes or not, ultimately would not be worth living at all. Wow. And basically the principle there, and, and this, is, this is so incredibly profound, the principle there is, okay, so let's say we do escape, let's say we do survive the camp, and okay, so you say that's going to mean that all this suffering had meaning, that you survived. That's right, yeah, sure. 
But that's the thing about life is that you're still going to die outside the camp. Sometime later, you're not going to survive. That's the thing about life is, you know, that nobody gets out alive, right? So if everything does end in death, if we're all, whether in the concentration camp or not, ultimately we're not going to survive, then it's not surviving the camp that gives it, that, 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 that provides meaning. There has to be meaning beyond that. There has to be meaning even in light of the fact that we're all going to die. Even in light of the fact of suffering and death. And that's where he winds up spending his, his, his time here. And, it, and is the reason that this book, this book sur- surpasses a lot of other books from the, from the Holocaust, because if, if it's just about the experience, it's horrible. It's it, the, the book is engaging. Yes. But this, this kind of takes you that that's what this, as you said, this kind of forced a lot of the decisions, uh, views of mankind, all that into one small set of circumstances, but he expanded it outside of that as well. Yeah. In under a hundred pages. Yeah. It's an incredible book. <laughs> All right. You're up. All right. I'm just going to do one more because we, we hit uh, kind of topics of the other ones and some of the other ones. And this is one that uh, Jocko Willink has quoted on his, uh, his podcast a few times. And it comes at the beginning. He says, the best of us did not return. And, and Jocko talks about that quote in, in just such a tragic way, because it, it's almost Frankel's way of saying, none of us were perfect in this, and to the best of us did not return. There are probably things that, that everyone had to do to, to make it, to get by, to, li- to, to, li- to live to the next day. Um, and in, in that one small sentence is just, Oh, I mean, sadness and and despair, the best of us did not return. Yeah. Well, I got, I'm going to go with two more. Um, Okay. One is, and this book spends a lot of time on freedom uh, and what freedom really means. And and this was in the context of, of, uh, he'd already established that human beings are free. Yes, we're limited, but we're free to respond to each individual circumstance None of our none of our responses are predetermined. All of us have the ability, and you know, a couple of your quotes got into that. This is where he goes next with that discussion. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon, whose positive aspect is responsibleness. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That's why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> I, if I were in office, I would push for this. <laughs> I want to put a Statue of Responsibility like right outside LA or, or San Francisco or something. Yeah. You know? Put that in the L.A. Harbor, the San Francisco Harbor, Monterey Bay or something, right? That uh, it's just brilliant. 
It's amazing. And what's interesting is then he is, is how he talks about freedom as the negative aspect and the positive aspect is responsibleness. And actually that's right. But normally people would think of freedom as the positive good. But he says, mm-hmm. no, freedom is the negative good. The positive good is yeah, most people think of freedom. Most people think freedom is the ability to do whatever you want to do. Right. And he says, that's just arbitrariness. Yeah. But responsibleness is what gives freedom its meaning. It's, it's the ability to do what you ought to do. Yeah. Yeah. And there is an ought in a lot, uh, it, it, whether stated or implied in a lot of what he has to say, even though he says you ultimately have to determine, you have to be able to decide what the ought is for you because it's never the same for anybody. What you ought to do is not the same as what I ought to do. And he said, so the, the therapist can't just say, this is you know the meaning of life. This is how you ought to live. There are principles that apply across the board to all humans, but the individual mileage varies. Mm-hmm. All right. So the final, actually, I can't, I, I'm sorry. There's two, I, I can't, I can't pass this one up. He was asked to tell the, to say in what sentence, what, uh, what logotherapy was, right? And so he said, well, okay, I'll, I, I can do that. But first I want you to tell me what, the, what you think the essence of psychoanalysis is. And the, the person who had asked him the question said, okay, well, during psychoanalysis, the patient must lie down on a couch and tell you things which are sometimes very disagreeable to tell. And he said, whereupon I immediately retorted with the following improvisation. Now in logotherapy, the patient may remain sitting erect, but he must hear things which sometimes are very disagreeable to hear. <laughs> <laughs> again, the, the sense of humor through this is just tremendous. And yeah. again, this is the whole notion of real therapy, really getting to the root of how you ought to live and the meaning of life is often at odds with what we actually would want. But the thing is, yeah. doing what we don't necessarily want is paradoxically the very thing that will make us happiest. <laughs> right? And that's, that's the brilliance of this. Finally, this, this, is the one, this is the one that I wanted to wrap my favorite quotes with because this, this was just, and I'm going to have a hard time making it through this, honestly. This is remarkable. So he says, one day, a few days after the liberation, <clears throat> I walked through the country past flowering meadows for miles and miles toward the market town near the camp. Larks rose to the sky, and I could hear their joyous song. There was no one to be seen for miles around. There was nothing but the wide earth and sky, and the lark's jubilation and the freedom of space. I stopped, looked around, and up to the sky, and then I went down on my knees. At that moment, there was very little I knew of myself or of the world. I had but one sentence in mind, always the same. I called to the Lord from my narrow prison, and he answered me in the freedom of space. How long I knelt there and repeated this sentence, memory can no longer recall. But I know that on that day, in that hour, my new life started. Step for step, I progressed until I again became a human being. Wow. So, I guess we can now move on to discuss some of the more, in addition, a few of the, a few of the more uh, topical aspects of this book, although we've covered some of them in our, in our quotes, as we typically do. 
But uh, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> it's an amazing, an amazing story. Anyway, yeah. Well, one, I, uh, my first nitty gritty thing is uh, something I alluded to earlier, but it was how serving others was was counterintuitive in the in the sense that it it probably ended up saving the person's life who was serving others. Uh, and I've I've heard these types of stories in other other books. Um, the in in such uh, a situation of deprivation, you would you would think that you would hoard as much as you could for yourself. So food, everything you would eat as much as you could. You could um, you would you would take everything for yourself to to try to prolong um, survival. And what what uh, Frankel witnessed, and what I've what I've read in other accounts of uh, of the Holocaust, is that it's some. It was oftentimes people who gave their food to others who survived, and it just that counterintuitive uh, sense. I and and if it's the humans' desire to 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 care for another or to give or uh, but just that 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 happened and then uh, frankel himself had a few decisions in the book where he's in one he stayed with his parents in vienna and then another he stayed with his patients instead of leaving the camp he had an opportunity to to go leave the camp and then later on in the book he realized or he learned that if he would have uh in the case with the patients if he would have gone uh and left his patients he would have gone to a situation where he would have been killed uh, or, or one that uh, went into cannibalism or something like that. So in, in that case, uh, staying with his patients, serving others actually saved his life. And he, there were, there were a lot of situations in the book where, where you had a decision and, and everything was so arbitrary. You didn't know if, if, because sometimes the guards would say, Hey, uh, if you go to this, this new camp, um, you'll, you'll have, you'll be doing a different kind of work. That's not as intense. But people would go to that and then they would be killed right away or it would be worse work. And so you never knew if the guards were serious or lying or just um, if it was going to lead to life or death. And his decision to to serve others in in those particular circumstances actually led to his survival. Yeah, paradoxically. And, and that was that was true not only of him, but of another another number of people that you know he talks about that you know these mm-hmm. were people that. Uh, the people who decided to serve others in the camp and found meaning in that ended up having something to live for. And as a result wound up, wound up surviving. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I, I, I want to go back to the notion of, you know, that, that, you know, you would think that when you're starving like that and all of that, that, that you would just hoard and try to, you know, consume as much, eat as much as you could for yourself, all of this, but it turned out not that way. This was another place where he uh, basically went against Freud. He, he said Freud didn't know what he was talking about here. He said, Sigmund Freud once asserted, let one attempt to expose a number of the most diverse people uniformly to hunger. With the increase of the imperative urge of hunger, all individual differences will blur. And in their stead will appear the uniform expression of the one unstilled urge. And he responded to that saying, thank heaven Sigmund Freud was spared knowing the concentration camps from the inside. 
His subject lay on a couch designed in the plush style of Victorian culture, not in the filth of Auschwitz. There, the individual differences did not blur. But on the contrary, people became more different. People unmasked themselves, both the swine and the saints. So he says Freud got it backwards. Freud said that in the uh, extreme conditions in which uh, the, the natural drive is driven to its full ex- fullest extent, to where you're starving and all you have, is, have left is hunger, everybody's going to be the same. Everybody's going pers- to be driven by that one thing. And Frankel said, I've been there and you're wrong. Mm-hmm. It worked the opposite. <laughs> and again the power of the power of this book it's like this kind of a book in a book in a book about war it just it takes all of it takes thoughts about human experience and what you think would happen and and you see it for what it actually is and that's what makes books about war and, and books like this so powerful and i, I love that he he took on freud here because <laughs> freud was talking to people on on victorian couches and not not in reality. Yeah, Freud was talking about what starvation would be like as someone who'd never experienced hunger quite like that. And Frankel said, I've been in places where we were all starving. And actually, it turned out that hunger did not blur the distinctions. In fact, you had people walking around giving other people their last pieces of bread. They were willing to sacrifice themselves. Mm-hmm. And he says something, there's something, and 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 this is where he goes with this, he, is he says there's something different about humanity than than other animals and if you're if you're taking a a a strictly materialist view like what uh or a nihilist view like what you see in 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 freud such that you know well you know we're basically all just animals underneath he said then you're then you then you miss something and you strip away the very thing that is necessary for survival and for humanity to be humanity so mm-hmm. yeah, he 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 really. Uh, I think there's a strong, strongly passionate undercurrent of opposing uh, Freudian type thinking, and not just Freudian, but just a general the general materialist uh, perspective of humanity as just driven by urges and desires and such that you know basically people are are no different than animals uh, in those regards. He says no, actually the thing that makes us different. The thing that makes us human is that even when we're in the most extreme circumstances where we would otherwise be subject to those things, we still have a choice. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, one thing that stuck out to me was uh, when he was talking about the importance of humor. And <laughs> yeah, those we, are we saw this passages. We saw this in uh, Deep Survival. And I, I actually consider uh, those, those books are a good mix because Deep Survival, that book, by uh, Gonzalez, which was on our 2017 reading list. That was like survival, f- physical survival. If you get to that circumstance, here's what you need to do physically and also some mindset things, but but more more so, he- here's how you can survive if, if you get in a bad situation. This was like, this book, Man's Search for Meaning, is like uh, survival of the soul and survival of, of your mindset. Well, it's survival and- of your very humanity. Yeah. Amidst, amidst horror and the importance of humor in that. And, and he said it would even be a, a, a dry humor or a dry humor or a, a kind of a dark humor. But um, it, the, 
the humor was important for people keeping their, their minds in, in this circumstance. Yeah. And he talked about how, when they, you know, the, the, the first time that they all had to give up their clothes and they're all naked together in the, in the shower, uh, in the, in the concentration camp and how they wound up joking with one another in the shower. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they really, you know, they, they kind of, uh, was like, there was this sense of relief. And also then they kind of made light of it, of the fact that there was real water coming out of the, out of the shower heads. So I guess we're not the ones that got gassed mm-hmm. and it's like, Oh my gosh, like <laughs> preserving your, your sense of humor in that moment. And he said, but that's the thing is that that that's what distinguishes us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, you want to do one? Yeah. So there's a passage, and I don't want to read too much of uh, too many parts of this, partly because it would be too long, but partly because I, I think it's really important for the uh, for the listener. Again, I urge the listener to read this book yourself. Uh, all, all all of you who are listening to this, read it yourselves. Um, but there's a section in here where when he's uh, digging digging a ditch in particular but he, there there were moments when he would be at work outside the camp or in the camp or whatever doing different things and then he would find himself contemplating the image of his wife and contemplating what it was like to spend time with his wife and would be conversing silently with his wife and uh you know, there's this one section where he says, I was again conversing silently with my wife, or perhaps I was struggling to find the reason for my sufferings, my slow dying. In a last violent protest against the hopelessness of imminent death, I sensed my spirit piercing the, uh, the enveloping room, or the enveloping gloom. I felt it uh, transcend that hopeless, meaningless world. And from somewhere, I heard a victorious yes in answer to my question of the existence of an ultimate purpose. And this this whole sort of sense of of sort of contemplation and conversation with his wife who is obviously not there um and who he found out later uh had been executed had been uh gassed almost immediately upon arriving at the at her camp uh so she had long been dead by the time he was doing this but how that gave him life at that moment and just some of the, the, the recounting of what it was like to go through that and all of that. It's, it's just, it's sublime and sublimely sad. And again, mm-hmm. it's well worth reading, well worth understanding. Very difficult to really grasp or to even want to grasp. But it's the sort of thing that we, we, we should uh, read and and try to understand and grasp and put ourselves in those, in those shoes. Yeah. I'll, um, I'll highlight just a couple more. One that stuck out to me is that he would shave daily. And this goes into the cigarette thing in my, in my mind that, uh, even in the, the worst of, of circumstances, he said he would look fit for work. I mean, every day for them was, was backbreaking work, but he would shave daily and that it kind of keeping, um, keeping in control of things. I, I, I thought a lot about, um, the book unbroken when I was reading this. Have, have you read that one? The, uh, um, Zap, Zamperini. Yeah, um, I haven't, I haven't read it. Well, one, one part is they, uh, they get in the ocean, 
they their plane crashes and, and they're in a lifeboat in the Zamperini book, uh, Unbroken. And the guy that hoards all the food and, and eats it without the others knowing is the first that dies. So that was uh, very much in line with this. And then, and then in prison, um, the importance of, uh, of, of these types of things of, of having, having a, a sense of control. And I, th- I think that's what shaving did. And, and in, in Unbroken, they, they would eat beans so that whenever they had to, he ended up in a Japanese prison camp. And whenever they would have to salute the emperor, they would have to bow and they would all eat beans. So when they, that, when they bowed, they would all uh, fart. And that, that was uh, one of their ways of, of keeping, uh, keeping <laughs> their sense of control and, and not having everything be taken from them. So j- just interesting things to think of um, for, for people that are, that are in this kind of a situation, the, the more that you can maintain a sense of control and just even small things like that of, of shaving daily uh, when it would seem dumb to, to do so um, is really important mentally. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, there's really one or two more things for me as well. I'm going to go with one here. And, and this is his warning about the nihilism of the modern world. So he actually says that other, you know, other forms of psychotherapy are potential. They could potentially exacerbate the problems, not only in their patients but in larger society, because of uh, their embrace of the nihilistic spirit of the age. Uh, he puts it in slightly different terms, but he says, you know. Psychotherapy will never be able to cope with this state of affairs on the mass scale if it does not keep itself free from the impact and influence of the contemporary trends of a nihilistic philosophy. Otherwise, it represents a symptom of the mass neurosis rather than its possible cure. And he says, he goes further and he says, There is a danger inherent in the teaching of man's nothing butness. The theory that man is nothing but the result of not, not biological, psychological, and societal, or, and sociological conditions or the product of heredity and environment. Such a view of man makes a neurotic believe what he is prone to believe anyway, namely that he is the pawn and victim of outer influences or inner circumstances. This neurotic fatalism is fostered and strengthened by a psychotherapy which denies that humanity is free. To be sure, a human being is a finite thing, and his freedom is restricted It is not freedom from conditions, but it is freedom to take a stand toward the conditions. And that distinction is really, really, really important. I can't emphasize that enough. He says, listen, yeah, we're all impacted by our biological, psychological, and sociological conditions. We are all impacted by our heredity and environment. But at the end of it, we still have a choice. At the end of it, we still have, you know, we... We're not, we're not free with regard to our conditions. Our conditions are our conditions. But we're free as to how we respond to our conditions. And mm-hmm. if, we don't, if we don't accept that freedom, then madness follows and death follows. And when a, when a whole society embraces that nothing butness, it's the things like the gas chambers that result. He actually says at one point, well, you know, if you actually believe this, if you actually believe that, you know, a, a person's uh, uh, value 
boils down to contributions to society or whatever. Uh, he said, it's, uh, you know, only, uh, he says, believe me, one owes only to personal inconsistency not to plead for euthanasia along the lines of Hitler's program. That is to say, mercy killing of all those who've lost their social usefulness, be it because of old age, incurable illness, mental deterioration, or whatever handicap they may suffer. He said, you know, if you think you're different, if you're embracing this particular way of, of viewing the world, it's only it's only thanks to your uh, to your uh, personal inconsistency that you're not uh, headed along the same track that Hitler was. He was just more consistent than you. Well, and here's a quote by Frankel that's not in this book, but it's one I, I hear often. And it's this. Uh, it ties in directly with what you're talking about. I'm absolutely convinced that the gas chambers of Auschwitz, Treblinka and Madenek were ultimately prepared not in some ministry or other in Berlin, but rather at the desks and in the lecture halls of nihilistic scientists and philosophers. Yeah, he's absolutely right about that too. And and, and, and this is uh, I've talked about this on this on this show before. When I teach on the Holocaust, one of the things that I try to hammer home to my students is Hitler was not a madman. He was not nuts. He was not crazy. These were not crazy people. He was consistent. He embraced a, an evil philosophy and was entirely and thoroughly consistent in his application of it. And that's way worse and far more frightening than a madman. Mm-hmm. And it's frightening that yeah. many of the influences that he embraced and took to their, to their end are the very people that I see taught. And sometimes I actually wind up teaching at the university level. I try, I try my best to uh, explain the limitations of those things, but oftentimes these these are the very people that are taught in modern Western universities. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's let's uh, move to our conclusions. Um, I, as I said in the beginning, this is my favorite book from the the list. It's not like favorite, like happy joy joy, but <laughs> favorite as in just deep and meaningful. Man, just meaningful. Yep. Uh, and it, it, it encompassed so many of the lessons that we saw in a lot of the other books from the 2017 reading list and, and obviously from this year's reading list as well. But, you know, this if, talking about first things first, re- read this book first and uh, and you, you'll catch a lot of the lessons we saw in 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 a lot of the other books. And just one of the main takeaways is you, you can't control your circumstances but you can control how you respond to those circumstances. And it's, it's a really important thing to remember through, through life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to echo what you said, and then I'm going to, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us with a couple quotes that he has uh, from this book uh, with a couple final quotes to, uh, to wrap the show. Ultimately, man should not ask about what the meaning of his life is, but rather he must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. Thus, logotherapy sees in responsibleness the very essence of human existence. This emphasis on responsibleness is reflected in the categorical imperative of logotherapy, which is... Live as if you were living already for the second time, and, is, and, and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now.
Once again, live as if you are living already for the second time and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now. Spend some time thinking about that one. Yeah, that's uh, not a quick... Uh, <laughs> what would, you it's know, not a what, quick one. That's think uh, about what, well over what that you one. would do the second time if you had a chance to undo what you're about to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll go ahead and wrap there. Um, once again, thank you to uh, the Patreon uh, subscribers. Once again, we have a Patreon account. Uh, for, if you've been getting any value out of this uh, podcast, please uh, uh, respond with some value as well. Uh, and also, as always, if you uh, are not a subscriber to this show, go ahead and uh, subscribe. You can go through Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google marketplace what if, if there is a a podcast manager that does not have this show just let us know and we'll make sure we get up there but uh you can you can get uh, you can subscribe to us through nearly anywhere and uh again if you're enjoying the show five star reviews uh particularly through apple podcasts or itunes uh are very helpful but uh reviews are are very welcome and uh, appreciated thank you to uh all of you who uh, have been supporting and listening Look forward to getting your comments on this episode. Until then, that's Eric. I'm Jason. This has been the Books of Titans podcast. Keep listening, keep reading, and keep improving. And keep it real. And find meaning in your realness. Yeah, I was trying to think of a a more meaningful saying than uh, keep it real. (laughs) Kind of seems trite. <laughs> the end of this one, yeah. <laughs>